This episode is sponsored by Podgo. We use Podgo to monetize all of our podcasts and get paid within 24 hours. So if you're a podcast, want to get paid, be sure to check out Podgo. That's P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. That's Podgo dot C-O. And be sure to enter our name in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. See you guys in the episode. It's the language of the universe. But I don't understand it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Math and Physics Podcast. I am your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we welcome you back to episode number eight. 80, Whoa. the big 8-0, where today we have for you guys another history of physics episode. Officially our most popular it is. type of episode is. that we put out, put out on this channel. Mm-hmm. So this particular episode, so I know for the last few history of physics episodes, we've been very, um, let's just say inconsistent with the the people that we're talking about because sometimes you know they have something directly to do with each other like einstein and Bohr, and sometimes they're just completely literally like pythagoras and like euler like different times and everything interesting though the point i'm trying to make is that does still it is still very interesting not to say it's not Mm -hmm. but i think maybe we can try especially with this particular episode i mean you've already read the title but with this particular episode these two individuals quite closely related, you know, like their fields are relatively similar, or at least one has used a lot of the other's work. Do you remember their fields? Sorry. Do you remember what the first episode was? Because I mean? like first uh, history episode. Well, yes, like, Richard we Feynman. I was Richard Feynman and you were shoot. Newton? Was it? Newton? You, yes, I think you were Newton. Okay. I think you were Newton. I think you were Newton. And the second one was the Fourier and Taylor. Yeah, so I mean, was, they were just yeah. cool people that we were talking about. But maybe now we can get in. I mean, let us know in the comments below what you guys think of this. But maybe now we go into similar fields of people. So today, for those people that have not yet read the title and just downloaded the video because, you know, you love it already. We are going to be talking about James Clark Maxwell yep. <laughs> and Ludwig Boltzmann from the same era in time same era same like similar fields and you literally have heard both of their names together Maxwell Boltzmann a lot of times and um, yeah yeah. so I have you know some kind of connection to Maxwell because I actually took electromagnetism Mm -hmm. last year which Ray skipped out on okay um but he'll, you'll get to it. You'll get to it. I'm taking the next semester. Like, <laughs> next it was semester. Just, the number of courses were different. Anyways. But yeah, <laughs> at the very end, the very last unit of that course was actually on Maxwell's equations. Now, Ooh. the thing is, Maxwell's equations are actually very complicated. But obviously, we looked at the, the physics behind, you know, electrostatics, magnetostatics. And then the connection between the two and then presented Maxwell's equation. So I got like a brief introduction. I feel like I can explain them as best as I can, which I will do, obviously, when we talk mm-hmm. about Maxwell. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, maybe Rehan will will learn a little something. No, as well. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm very excited to learn it next year, anyways. I mean, maybe I can get a little sneak peek of what is gonna be in my course, sure. but um, definitely. And Maxwell's equations, I mean, for anyone who is in higher level physics or even if you're in lower level physics, probably heard of that of that term or, yeah. that, or of that phrase, Maxwell's equations super important for the fundamentals of electricity yeah right and boltzmann comes in and actually uses a lot of maxwell's equations to do stuff with him and i mean we can obviously get into that but like they do a lot of their stuff together because basically the the fundamental math a lot of it comes from Boltzmann. And again, we can explain like what the differences are between the guys and stuff like that and what fields they specialized in. And, and a lot of the physics came from Maxwell, especially with like some of the equations. So, I mean, I think, I think it'll be fun to see, you know, what both of them did together and what they did separately and stuff like that. 100%. Yep. But before we actually get into the podcast we have to hit you with a little bit of news a little bit a lot of bit of news because t this week we are act i mean not the biggest week i think next week will be a lot bigger cuz oh, yeah, this week sure. we are sitting at 238,000 downloads oh my oh my i think we're averaging over a thousand downloads a day so now, interestingly enough, we are actually recording this episode a few days earlier than we usually do because I'm a little unavailable this weekend. So by next Saturday, oh, we're probably oh, going to be there. A quarter million? We're probably going to be there. Oh, my. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I that's, can see it. So that's going to be very um, entertaining. That's going to be amazing. It's truly crazy, crazy milestone. So again, obviously, thank you to everyone who keeps downloading it. Mm -hmm. And talking to our Spotify followers out there. Again, all the other followers, you're not forgotten. It's just a lot harder to get the analytics for all the separate ones. Spotify is just a lot easier. So we just repeat that. So Spotify, we're almost, almost at 15,000. We're at 14.8 roughly. Hmm. So we're almost at 15,000 followers. So thank you to That's everyone. That's cool. That's cool. Thank you to everyone who continues to follow us. And lastly... Gotta, gotta get this in too nowadays. The YouTube subscriber count. So we hit a thousand, I think, did we hit it a month back? More than a month back? More than a month more back. More than a month? Way. Sorry, I, 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 think, a, I think I'm forgetting. So we hit a thousand, but relatively recently, you know, relative yeah. to when we started. Now we're at 1.8. Let's go. Yeah, we're at 1830 subscribers, at least the day we're recording this. So hopefully, I mean, Will we get 2,000 by next week, you think? I don't think so. I don't know. Probably but, not, but let's see. But if you do right now go on YouTube yeah. and hit the subscribe button, Maybe anything we'll, can happen. Yeah. Maybe we'll get so, closer to hitting that 2,000. Boom. If you're watching this, listening to this, make sure to follow, subscribe, like, and leave a comment. Why would you leave a comment? Why would you? Because every single week, we pick out a comment of the week. Today's no comment comes from, his name is Sergio Perez. He left a comment on last week's video, and it's a pretty long comment. I'm not going to read it all, but uh, essentially he says that um, like math was hard for him because of uh, like developmental alterations and you know ADHD and those types of things. Um, but he actually finds it easy to listen to our podcast, oh. and he can actually visualize the math and the physics that we talk about here on the, the, the audio format, because we do have to break it down. 
because it's it's audio only you know kind of video I mean, but yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of video but yeah. mainly just audio so we do have to break it down and all that mm -hmm. so yeah he says thank you for inspiring me to stop fearing math he's now starting to read math books on his own and he says hopefully next year he's going to enroll in physics so thank you so much for your comments and make sure to leave a comment if you want to be next week's comment of the week i think that's that well, i think that's that. Do you want to go first why not let's begin with ludwig boltzmann when was maxwell born by the way he I was born in 1831 okay okay so yours is a little earlier so ludwig boltzmann was born in 1844 actually a little different date there and he was born in uh vienna yeah so he's an austrian physicist that um yeah he's basically an austrian physicist that uh, he wasn't really in a family of scientists or anything crazy like that his father i believe was simply like a tax asian collector or something like that so it wasn't like a rooted in science kind of families where it, where it started right and uh it simply happened that a couple of years later, he simply enrolled himself into mathematics and uh, mathematics and physics program at the University of Vienna and just continued with that. And again, in this time, like the 1800s, Parker and I were talking about this just before the episode. People got into university relatively soon, yeah. like relatively soon. Now, I guess now there are some people that, you know, started at 14 and 15 and stuff like that. And Boltzmann got his Ph.D. by the age of 22. Right, so he was a full doctorate level scientist at the age of 22. Now, in this whole um, endeavor of his, of studying at the University of Vienna, the uh, director of the physics in that in, of the physics faculty was none other than Joseph Stefan. Now, Stefan, if maybe don't recognize that name, uh, maybe the Stefan Boltzmann law. May have heard of that. Oh. That might that might have got something for you. The Stefan Boltzmann constant, another big one. So again, it's not the same thing. Yeah, I mean, no, well, no. I mean, no, no. Well, no. The Stefan Boltzmann law is a law. The Stefan Boltzmann yeah, constant but it's is in a, in is, the law. It's so. a constant in the yeah. law. But I'm just saying that's probably where you've heard the name Stefan Stefan from. Mm -hmm. And anyway, so uh, while Boltzmann was working, while he was in university. He, I mean, I'm assuming he simply got close to the director. So he got close to Stefan. And uh, they began working together after. And actually, his very first job, or one of the big ones at another university in another country, he got because Stefan had sent in a letter of recommendation. Mm. And he had said, hey, he's, a, he's definitely good. And the interesting thing about Boltzmann in his, or at least personal lifestyle, is that he was very, um, very erratic individual he kept bouncing back and forth between jobs like one or three years he used to be like professor at certain universities to the point where <laughs> this is a little funny to the point where i believe it was the austrian emperor at the time that wouldn't give boltzmann a job at the university that he was applying to because of how erratic his because he was like you're just gonna leave again what's the point so I need a guarantee that you're going to stay here kind of thing. And that was, I mean, I just, I just find that a little funny that he was so into it that he just kept going back and forth again, not too sure why. I'm just assuming maybe just wanted different experiences, but I mean, that's up to him. And in this whole trip, right, where he, uh, where I guess he, 
he's doing a lot of things here and there is also where he formulated a better relationship with Stefan. He formulated better relationships and was talking to a lot of the famous physicists at the time. I don't believe he ever directly spoke with Maxwell. I could be mistaken. But I think it was just their knowledge they were studying the same well you know not they weren't only studying one thing right but they were both studying at the same time the kinetic theory of of, of noble gases well it i it, well it started with ideal gases ideal. So I, all, I, all all is ideal right that's how the math always starts and then you simply generalize it so it was uh the kinetic theory of gases was originated I mean, there's so many people that actually, like, you know, thought about it. Yeah. It's just that Boltzmann actually put it on paper and succinctly stated what it is, what the relationship is. And then I believe Maxwell's, again, equations come into it mm -hmm. because, again, they simply assist the proof. But, again, I don't think there was ever, ever any, like, hey, Maxwell, how you doing kind of thing yeah. between, them, between the both of them. So, so that's, yeah, so that's a little bit of Boltzmann's history. I don't think I'm missing anything big. If I do, I'll maybe butt in, but I think that's basically it. All right. Let's a listen little about, bit about Maxwell. Maxwell. So James Clerk Maxwell. One thing. Sorry, I just forgot. Oh, one, my. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. One thing I just wanted to mention that I found really sweet about Boltzmann. Very nice individual. Um, not that I knew, but his wife, not at the time, but a... So at the time, women um, becoming you know, going into science, going into like professorship, not really heard of, like almost like not even allowed to the point. And there was this, um, there was this uh, woman, Henriette, who was applying for the math and physics and Boltzmann at the time, I'm assuming they may have started a relationship together of some sort. And he had appealed for her to get into the program and she got in because of him. Oh. And then they ended up getting married right oh. after. So I just found that really cool. A little more extra part nice. in his life. That's yeah. fun. <laughs> you can go. <laughs> let's, let, let, let's hear a little bit about Maxwell. So, so James Clerk Maxwell, he was born on a summer day of 18. I was about to say 19. Yeah. 1831 in Edinburgh in Scotland. He was a nice. Scottish man. Okay. Nice. So let's just say that his family was comfortable, okay? When he, comfortable. Was, when he was a young boy, okay, they moved on, they, they built an estate, his family, his mm. parents, mm. on a 1,500-acre plot of land, okay? Oof. So he, you know, he, he, had, he had space. Oof. He had a room it's to explore, space. <laughs> you know, a little section of, of the earth to mm -hmm. himself, okay? And um, fun fact, his dad's name, or his family name, is actually not Maxwell. It's, it's, his dad's name is John Clerk. He added Maxwell to the end of his name after he inherited a property that was from a Maxwell. Oh. So he, he inherited a property and he said, you know what? How would he inherit from a Maxwell though? Like, I don't know the details. Yeah, that's so weird. But uh, yeah, he, he literally inherited an estate, a, a Maxwell property, and he put the Maxwell on his name. So James Clerk Maxwell, the Maxwell equations could have actually been called the Clerk equations, but you know. Wow. Little fun that would have been very there. different. 
little very fun different. fact. Very different so, life there. So James was actually should I call him should I call him Maxwell? Or I James think you should call, call him Maxwell. <laughs> They're the James. James. So okay, Maxwell when he was a kid. Obviously, you know, he was good in school, but surprisingly, well, I don't know if this is surprising, but he was actually really good in English and poetry. No, that and, is surprising. And he surprising. could actually, he, he memorized um, the book of Psalm from the Bible. And you, you could like ask him like, what is chapter this verse this? And he could just recite it to you. Cool. Yeah, he did that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, no. that's pretty cool. That's when, pretty when cool. he was a kid, like literally when he was like like ten or, or even younger than that. Um, actually, when he was younger than that, because his mom died in eighteen thirty nine, and it was his mom that was like supervising his church studies. So that's crazy. He had a crazy memory, I guess, and uh, he was actually really good in school, but he never really like fit in. You know what I mean? Because it's kind of like kind of like an Einstein situation, but not really, because he would still get good grades, but he was just very smart to the point where like he needed, you know, he actually had a tutor and the tutor was garbage. So they got rid of the tutor. <laughs> and when he was actually um, 16 years old, well, he went, you know, he went to like this private school when he was younger than that. And he got a bunch of prizes for, for, English poetry and he actually started when he was 14 he wrote his first paper he was still in like when you're 14 you know he was 14 when he wrote his no, first yeah. paper he wrote he wrote a paper wow. on um on mathematical curves and ellipses curves with two foci who even thinks of this at 14 uh, you know he was he was he was drawing curves and writing papers at the age of 14 and this actual paper he couldn't publish himself because people thought he was literally too young of so, course so he got his tutor not the garbage one <laughs> a good one he got a tutor to actually present it to um the royal society of edinburgh and uh you know it got picked up after that he couldn't Clearly. he couldn't just yeah. go and do it himself but he was 14 and he actually went to university at the age of 16 and guess what? He was taking, uh, at the time, all the scientists were into like psychology, f natural philosophy, as well as mathematics and physics. So he was taking those courses. And it was actually very easy for him. His course load was said to be light. And he had a lot of free time to study on his own. Okay. And so by the time he was 18 he actually contributed to two more papers 18 years old think That's about crazy. that okay and um he was actually interested or getting interested while he was at the university of edinburgh by the way i didn't mention that but that's the university he went to he actually had the opportunity to go to cambridge after his first year but he denied that opportunity and decided to stay and finish his uh, his studies at the University of Edinburgh. So um, while he was studying there, his main, not his main focus, but one of his interests was the properties of polarized light, which, which is actually one of the keys to get into the door of quantum mechanics. But at the time, it wasn't even, it wasn't even, 
Yeah. Remember, quantum Around. mechanics was a thing like early 1900s. No, no not even middle. No, I no, no, I'm not. I'm not saying against you. I'm just saying in general. Like what? Early, middle, mid 1900s, right? Early 1900s. Er, early-ish 1900s. Well, even well, um, Planck was late 18, 1800s. Yeah, valid, valid. So, depends on what you call the start. But yeah. Valid, valid. No, yeah. Like black body radiation is pretty much the start. So, anyways, the point is that he was interested in like things, topics that would unlock quantum mechanics, but it wasn't even there you know what i mean it wasn't even possible to start thinking about those topics but he was still in in that in that medium i guess mm -hmm. do you want to continue Man, about boltzmann i mean not not anything personal if there's anything you oh, want no, to continue no. about a personal not then personal okay so then we can maybe get into a little bit about what these two um individuals did now i'm not I'm going to be completely honest, 100% sure about the chronology because I know it kind of just goes back and forth with a lot of the a lot of the different things because I know, especially with Boltzmann, there's a lot of things that he did relating to the kinetic theory of gases with other people and with himself. So I'm just not entirely sure about the timeline, but I can just tell you guys everything that happened and everything cool about it. So maybe, I don't know about when you're going to talk about Maxwell's distribution and stuff, so maybe I wait a little bit but we can start with like something because you were t you mentioned black bodies. So I just wanted to, I just thought of that. We can start with the simple Stefan Boltzmann's law, right? So that's actually one of uh, a very famous laws that he helped derive using thermodynamic properties. So this, so Stefan's law, which is, I believe, which is how it's, a, how it originated was a, was a very basic equation. And then Boltzmann came into it, and I get, I think he he basically further proved the relationship between. So wait, what is Stefan Boltzmann's law? I should I should probably say something like that. It is the relationship between the temperature and how do I say this simply? It's it, I mean it's it's basically the energy given off. So the energy given off by any body related to its temperature, right? And that's that's basically that's basically the relationship and the point that uh, the point that the original law was making is that this relationship is t to the 4 that means as temperature increases your um your energy that your body is basically emitting is increasing to the fourth power and how is this i feel like it's this is directly related to bean's displacement law yeah um but Wien's displacement law is the peak wavelength, right? And then the wavelength is directly related to the energy. Yes, is exactly. Right? Okay. So, so, so Wien's displacement law is also got from a yes. So that that is basically to get your peak, your your peak wavelength to get your energy spectrum. And so, I mean, Wien's and Stefan Boltzmann's do agree with each other, which is actually a big a big proof that I mean, obviously, does have to happen. And again, it's just it's just that relationship between like that energy that it releases basically and the temperature inherently of the body. So why is this even important? So you were mentioning black bodies, right? So this starts a little bit by talking about, well, what's a black body? So I think we have mentioned this before, but maybe a quick a quick little recap. A black body is simply a body that um, absorbs all amounts of radiation equally. Now, in real life, nothing is really a true black body because nothing really absorbs everything equally 
or equal in intensity in every different in every location on its body so nothing is a perfect black body but again in physics we always have theories that are with the ideal situation and then we try to you know generalize them down to what the real world is so the idea of this radiation it's actually called black body radiation states that every body that has a temperature above absolute zero will emit some sort of radiation and the simplest example of seeing what this energy relationship even is is on a simple stove when you heat up your stove how it glows red i mean there's not actually any red coloring that's there it's simply the metal from your stove that's so yeah. hot the temperature is so hot that it is radiating energy that you can now see energy at which the frequency the energy again when i'm saying energy i basically mean light again that's the energy that i'm talking yeah. about and it's emitting it at a frequency that now i can see cuz right now everything around us you can't see any of it right ever i mean you you may have heard like the classic that all, like all of us we glow in infrared so if you have an infrared camera you can see everybody even in mm -hmm. the dark but if we're not giving off visible light you can't see us yeah. unless you heat us up. <laughs> well, think about this. If you had infrared eyes, just like we have visible light eyes. Yeah. So when you heat up a stove, like a stovetop coil, you see it become red because it's energy or it, the temperature gets to a point where the energy that it's radiating can be captivated by your eyes. But if you had infrared eyes, then even if you turn all the lights off, right? Ray's body to my eyes would be like a stove literally glowing and mm -hmm. I would be able to see him whether you know it's dark or not because to us dark is just the absence of visible light a visible light exactly but light extends beyond the visible spectrum and so mm -hmm. if my eyes were infrared Ray would just be like a walking glowing body mm -hmm. so a big thing about this whole experiment is also and that's where the peak wavelength thing comes in from when you're so every body has this peak wavelength Right. So every body emits this radiation, emits this radiation at a specific distribution of wavelengths. Right. It, it, it emits it at. OK, it's I mean, again, if again, I'm trying to picture it and think about it, but it's simply some it's it's if you want to think about it, it's just a right skewed graph. It's a right skewed Gaussian. And that's basically your standard um, distribution of your intensities or of your energies. Right. So usually your um, most probabilistic wavelength is what they call your peak wavelength. So the distribution where it's most heavily centered around, right, like the peak of the distribution will again be your peak wavelength. Now, everybody has a peak wavelength. So do we. And ours happens to fall in infrared. And the thing we were also talking about with Wine's displacement law is another relationship between wavelength, just to understand the, the wavelength relationship here. Just, it's just a different formula that does the same thing. But at the end of the day, what it's really understanding is the relationship between a body's temperature and the radiation that it is mm -hmm. actively emitting. Right? And that's something cool that Boltzmann kind of assisted with and obviously helped prove, which is where he capped it off with Stefan. And also, we're not just like speaking words right now. You can actually take, you know, the average body temperature, mm. plug it into this formula and mm. literally see that the wavelength that your body emits is in infrared. Mm. And, you know, 
I was gonna say if you heat yourself up to yeah, a certain, don't do I don't know, don't do that. Don't do that. I don't think skin glows at any temperature at which we just won't just die. You know, like no, I, I think skin no, that, skin would probably require. Okay. Okay, let's not talk about this because I don't. Need, this is all biology too because I don't know what probably just burn up, know. right? I don't know. But coming anyway. back to Maxwell really quickly. Let's come back to Maxwell. Um, by the time he was twenty nine, he actually went to four universities whether it was to study or to teach she's 29 years old okay so after he he graduated from the university of edinburgh and he went to the university of cambridge this was in 1850 so he was 19 years old okay edinburgh for his or sorry cambridge for his his second round and this time it was a mathematical round so he went in um, this was a, a six-year period that he stayed at Cambridge. By the end of it, he came out with a degree in mathematics, and he also joined a secret society. So that's interesting. Where like a secret mathematics society, or like a- um, it's it was the it was called the Cambridge Apostles, and it's like there's a Trinity College. We at U of T, we also have a Trinity College, but I'm pretty sure it's inspired from yes, it Cambridge. Is, it, is, it is. It is Cambridge's right. Trinity, yeah. and he actually was a part of that. He was part of Trinity at, at Cambridge, and um, he was actually elected to the elite secret society. Oh my! Known as the Cambridge Apostles. And, wow, that's um, yeah. That's where he, he he learned like in within that elite society, he learned a lot about uh, like Christian faith and science in general because the elite would study science. Wow! Now, very interesting. Life he actually graduated second of his class behind behind another student. Okay, is he famous though? I don't no, think so. No. When I read the name, it did not Tough. ring a bell. Tough. But it was actually later announced that they were tied (laughs) they were tied that's funny that's funny (laughs) yeah um so technically he graduated first of his class congratulations to him um yeah that's that's pretty much it he also you know he published more papers and while he was at cambridge he actually published his first paper on electricity and magnetism not yet electromagnetism because they weren't unified yet so it's electricity and magnetism now after cambridge in 1856 he went to the marischal college marischal whatever here's here's what happened at marischal college that was interesting noteworthy to say on the podcast at the time it was unknown how saturn actually had rings because it was a huge stability issue right if saturn's rings were actually like solid objects it's completely unknown to like why they would just stay there and also if saturn's rings were like um not uh i I don't want to say clumps like but like like big pieces big chunks like made up of big chunks then what would happen is that they would actually create clumps and be completely destabilized and they would not be able to just sit there in space. And so uh, it was actually, um, it was chosen, that topic, the stability of Saturn's rings, was chosen as the 1857 Adams Prize, where if you solve it, you get a prize. 
And so I'm assuming Maxwell. Maxwell won it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he his solution was that the rings were made of numerous small particles, very, very, very small particles. Um, and we actually saw this uh, last year in our astrophysics class where um, we were talking about Saturn's rings. And our professor, she said, if you take the the ratio between the thickness and the like diameter, I guess, like across, like I'm not not all the way across the rings. I mean, like the thickness of the rings, you know, like it's a it's a ring, the thickness versus diameter uh, thickness. Like a disc. I say thickness twice. This doesn't make sense. Yeah, you're not. Right. Okay, from the outer radius to the inner radius, that distance. Yeah. And the ratio between the thickness of it. Yeah. Is less than uh, the edge of a razor blade. Okay. So if you take, because yeah, if you no, take I remember the, this. The width, I remember this. The width, the thickness divided by the width, it would be less than yeah, like it's the, a literal razor blade. Basically saying that it's really thin compared to the size of Saturn. Like yeah, that's very very thin. Yeah, very. Or, or no, I mean sorry. the Saturn's rings. Com- yeah, Saturn's relative, rings are very thin relative, relative to yeah. well anything really. Just because yeah, they're so big. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the, yeah. the space that they're actually they're taking up is so gigantic. Yeah. yeah. Right? And so guess how much he won for that. Back in, in 1857, how much did he win for solving that? 100 that, grand? That 100,000? Is that too much? I thought that <laughs> would be, because it's a million right now for some plot prizes. No, no. He won $130. Or oh. pa- pounds. Pounds. What? That's pounds. appalling. Well, if you think about it. like Even 130 pounds though no, right now. No, but if you think about like inflation, like from, from the 1800s. Probably you're right. No, yeah, that's that's probably probably insane. You're probably right. (laughs) Probably very insane. Like a hamburger in 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 nineteen fifty was ten cents. You know what I mean? No, what? Oh, you're nineteen. I I thought you said eighteen fifty. Nineteen fifty was like ten cents. No, I thought you were gonna say eighteen fifty ten cents. No, imagine how much one hundred and thirty pounds was worth in nineteen fifty. Now go back a hundred years. Probably no. Now go back a hundred years. Valid. That's valid. all I'm saying. He was probably it a was little a bit rich. I mean, he owned a, lot. a thousand acres no, yeah, of he land. Didn't, he like, didn't need I don't it. think his he needed. dad did, but yeah, sorry, he didn't but need I it. I don't think he really needed <laughs> no, he anything. Re- he really it was. It was just nice that he was that he got it. <laughs> so, so that's fun. Next, he went to King's College. Oh, this is in London. Okay, and um, he went there actually to to teach. He was actually appointed um, the. I think the dean is is that right? One sec. Was it like the head? Yeah, he was the head of like of the of, of the physics department. I think so. Or the math department. I, I'll, I'll let you know if I if I if I see wait. It was in the it notes uh, was here. it math or physics here? This is physics. This is physics. Yeah, hundred percent. Right? And this is where, in King's College, this is the notable part of his life, where I think this is like three years into his time at uh, King's College. He published his famous Maxwell's equations. So <laughs> here um, it is. And he here it is. At King's College, he actually had a relationship, like professional relationship, with Michael Faraday. Ooh. Which he was Michael Faraday was actually forty years older than he was. 
but so you know there's kind of a seniority dynamic there but he was actually you know he had a relationship with him where they would talk about because fair fair day is his law you know what i mean you have to do a fair day oh my god i forgot about fair day um oh so yeah and one thing about maxwell if you don't know maxwell's equations is that faraday's law is actually one of maxwell's equations but it wasn't actually completely right maxwell had to add a correcting term and then after he added that correcting term it was now a max part of maxwell's equations snake <laughs> yeah. so before i actually talk about maxwell's equations we have to go back to boltzmann to, boltzmann. to, to catch up a little bit uh, yeah so l- let's let's catch up on boltzmann's life a little bit more so we've touched on the stefan boltzmann's law and you know how cool that is and he's done a lot of other things Maybe we can now start with one of the most fundamental things that he did, which was the invention of Boltzmann statistics, or basically modern-day statistical mechanics. So ways of physics, there are many ways to do physics, right? There's Newtonian mechanics, there's Hamiltonian mechanics, there's Lagrangian mechanics, there's Einsteinian mechanics that all basically work together, and that's the whole purpose of it, right? They have to make sense. Now, there's another one known as statistical mechanics. And this is basically, and so while all of them have their own respective properties of how they work, how you can solve their equations of motion, stuff like that, statistical mechanics is based off of probability laws. And it's based off of finding processes in physics that can be dumbed down to simple probabilities. And it's really cool because Parker and I were actually doing a course last semester on thermodynamics. And statistical mechanics is basically thermodynamics. It it, it is. It basically is thermodynamics. So what is Boltzmann statistics like, or at least the, the idea behind it? A simple way to think about it can be that. And remember, this is where the probability theory, the quantum mechanics, none of that exists. So he basically simply says, hey, when a system reaches thermal equilibrium, right, there is something in this system which goes to an absolute maximum and there's something that goes to a minimum. And when it's not in thermal equilibrium, well, that's not true. And obviously after you know, relationships and laws, again, a lot of theory. He, again, not sure if he was the first one to derive it, but I do know that he was the first one to kind of prove the relationship basically between entropy and its following microstates. So in the entropy episode that we had, we kind of explained this equation in crazy depth. So I'm not going to get into it right now. But basically, the understanding of the entropy equation, and this was, again, formulated officially by Boltzmann, was, again, the, the, the constant in the middle is actually Boltzmann's constant. So also seeing how it's, it can become very important. So um, again, fundamental understanding of this equation is that, well, we have separate, so we have a system that has many separated, I don't want to use the word microstate because we haven't defined any of that yet, but like it, it has a very separate processes that can happen, right? Very many particles moving about. When this whole system comes to equilibrium, 
the number of random events that can happen basically go to a maximum. And this was a very foundational understanding of one of like the principles of understanding statistical mechanics with, with equilibrium conditions. So when a system reaches thermal equilibrium, the amount of random fluctuations reach a maximum or the entropy reaches a maximum. So what that basically means is in all of statistics, everything can be explained very simply. Luck, for example, what we call luck is basic statistics. You can see that when we tend to a large number of data values, all distributions, most of them at least, in the realm that we're talking about, move towards a normal distribution, every single one. And this is a very famous uh, statistical fact known as the central limit theorem. As the number of measurements get larger, all distributions approach, not again all, some they do require certain properties, I'm not going to get into that, but they approach a normal distribution. And so is your life. Your whole life is dictated by a normal distribution. So if you're having a good day today, statistically, you're probably not going to have one tomorrow. Statistically. Is that, is that true? That is actually true. So when you're having, when you're having like really good poker hands, stuff like when you're even oh, in you're cards. Talking, I thought you meant like emotionally. No, like even, you're having no, a no, good no, 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 not emotionally. <laughs> no, 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 not emotionally. I'm just saying, you know, when your luck is just good, yeah, things just happen for you. Like that's not, you know, a foreign entity. That's just statistics. That's because your life revolves around a normal distribution. On average, you will do certain things most of the time. So on average, you'll probably get a hot dog. But then what? on the, I'm just trying to give an example. But then on the one occasion, on the tails of the graph, if you can imagine yeah. a normal graph, on the tails is where you'll get your very lucky, very unlucky. Maybe I grab sushi today. Maybe I don't eat today. Oh. Stuff like that, you know? So those are like your two tail ends. And that's basically an idea that this whole distribution and applying these statistical facts to physics comes up with. That, hey, we can now reduce physics to simply these probabilities. So how probabilistic is something happening? And it started off with simply... Well, again, this is where Maxwell comes into it as well. Uh, well, with the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution. And this is a very famous, the Maxwell-Boltzmann equation, where he basically um, derives a formula for the, well, it, it's, it's actually the velocity, right? Because there's also, there are multiple formulas that they do happen to derive together. Because of this particular relationship, it derives a lot of more relationships between properties of particles. But again, basically, the relationship that he came up with was what will be the, the average or the most probable velocity of any system of particles given certain properties. So given a certain temperature, given a certain energy, what would be the velocity? What will be the probability of something happening, right? Now, when I say velocity, again, I'm... I'm, I'm kind of making a lot of terms just a little bit easier to understand because the actual thing or the actual equation itself is you're trying to find the probability of a certain microstate. So you're trying to find, well, what's the probability that this particle or this particular state is traveling at this velocity? And you can get that from the distribution. And all of this 
is grounded in Boltzmann statistics, right? So basically a method of statistical analysis that he came up with to talk about with respect to physics. And it's really cool because one thing I want to talk, because I know your Maxwell's equation will go on long and super interesting too. That's why I want to talk about one other thing before we get in there. Um, the Boltzmann brain. This is really cool, man. This is really, I, I, I read about this today. I just re started reading about it. And it's basically really interesting. So you know how the universe started, right? The idea is that there was thermal equilibrium in this singularity. And it caused by random fluctuations, the universe is now where it is. That's basically the whole, the best theory that we can come up with. Random fluctuations. Random fluctuations that follow statistical distributions. So again, this idea of statistical mechanics applying to even the universe, you can think when the universe comes into a state of thermal equilibrium, the entropy will be at a maximum. Now, if the entropy is at a maximum, as I was mentioning before, the amount of random things that can happen also become a maximum. Random fluctuations, random events also tends to a maximum as entropy increases. And the interesting thing about this, now this is where the Boltzmann brain comes from. It's a very interesting fact, or it's, it's basically a thought, it's a thought experiment about a brain being created in a void simply because of oh, random particles coming together. <laughs> and the idea was that it is more statistically possible for a whole brain to come together at a random moment in time, in, if we have infinite time, for if we at a random moment in time for all these particles to come together and form a brain with false memories and everything, than it is for the universe to exist right now. How do you mathematically calculate that? So again, that? I, I'm not getting, not, we're not getting into that. Yeah. But that, that was, that was a, a thought from the Boltzmann Dang. brain. And another extension of that thought as well, what about a whole Boltzmann body? Yeah. Right, like a whole Boltzmann person basically yeah. connected versus the probability that the universe just randomly came into existence. So, right? wait, what if? Okay, so so this, cool. this kind of brings into question the fact that like, okay, let's say you are a Boltzmann brain with mm -hmm. fake memories. And right now, <laughs> this is actually funny because this connects to one of the very first clips that we put out, which was uh, like the, the idea that you're already dead. Oh. But, but think about this. Imagine if you are a Boltzmann brain that has been like loaded into the universe with false memories. Mm -hmm. And right now you're just accessing those false memories. You know what I mean? I mean, no, that's actually, you know I mean? that's actually a valid thought of this particular yeah, experiment exactly. because the whole point of this experiment is, well, how did science really evolve, right? Like, we're, we're like, what is the way... And again, this is basically through a use of philosophy that he deducted yeah. that this is a more statistically possible event. And it's interesting to see that, you know, something like this can even be thought of. But also in this case, you, you, you kind of have to remove yourself from the human like side of things and think about how, okay, right now we think of a brain as a human brain, but in this universe, like a, a separate universe, because when you think about a Boltzmann brain that has false memories loaded into it, that means that everything that you know for sure right now 
is just a created false memory, which means the universe that you're living in is just a false universe. So then think about what is the real universe in which the Boltzmann brain has been loaded into and what are the rules of that universe? Would they be the same as this universe because you are a Boltzmann brain? Because the Boltzmann brain was thought about in mm. the universe that we're in now. So, I don't know. Think about that for a sec. <laughs> no, I mean, the, <clears throat> the, whole, the whole purpose of this experiment was to yeah, just no, think no. about it for a yeah, sec. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, it's definitely an interesting thing just to think about. Because, again, not, I mean, we know enough about Maxwell and Boltzmann to just have a conversation. Yeah. This is something I had never even imagined to even read about, you know, something like this. But it's super yeah. cool. You know, that someone, because even though he, especially at this time, all major physicists, all major scientists were in some way philosophers. Yeah. And this whole argument of the Boltzmann brain stems from philosophy. It's actually from a reductio argument that he gets that, okay, this is mm. must be possible. And therefore we have Boltzmann brains. And he gets to this whole crazy logic, but it's basically just through simple philosophy and understanding that he kind of comes to this this uh this final statement which i just find a little funny you, you know but, we should we should actually bring back a philosophy episode no we need because, to bring back a because, philosophy episode because like if we just talk about philosophy for a dedicated like whole episode we could definitely think of some crazy stuff which 100%. which is always which is always 100%. fun you know <laughs> so anyways i mean that's basically boltzmann statistics for you yeah. just a little bit of what he got into and contributed to science so Let's hear it. In terms of Maxwell, here's what I was thinking I'm, I'm personally. I don't think I'm going to get into the equations that much. Get into it to the point where, you because know. Because there are other things I want to talk about okay, too. Well, yeah, so we can get into everything. So I think maybe I'll start with the other things and then talk about yep. Maxwell's equations. Okay. Okay, so first thing I want to say is that um, while, he, while Maxwell is at King's College, he actually calculated the speed of propagation of an electromagnetic field because it is a field after all if you if you have a charge you know let's say you spawn a charge back then one of the questions was okay well do the effects of this charge immediately are felt by other charges around or does it take time for the electric field to actually propagate through space and this actually has to do with the speed of causality which, let me get to the point. The point is that he calculated it to be approximately the speed of light. Now, all of a sudden, you have, at the time, these unrelated things that are coming together. You have electricity, which is one thing. You have magnetism, which were two separate things. They didn't really, there wasn't a reason for them to be together at the time. At the time, yes, at the for time. sure, of course. And now you have... I mean, there were still similarities. No, there were similarities. You know, there but there were a lot of differences as well. Yeah, but like you can... Like just the simplest thing you can think about similarity-wise yeah. is, hey, two, two north sides repel, yeah. two electrons repel. Oh, And, and one thing that when, when you start to study electromagnetism magnetism, is that you find that um, like metaphorically and literally and figuratively... Electricity is perpendicular to magnetism, you know, in the sense where when we talk about photons, the electric 
field and the magnetic field are waving perpendicular to each other. <clears throat> but let's say you have like a line current. The electric field in that current is actually perpendicular at all times to the magnetic field, which actually rotates around the line. Okay. And so it's examples like this that have to like, it makes you think of like, it's like they're perpendicular, but in more than just being 90 degrees to each other. And there are a lot of, am I, I feel like I'm not speaking into the mic properly, but <laughs> anyways, <laughs> anyways. Um, okay. So now you have these electromagnetic fields that are somehow related to the speed of light. Why does the speed of light, like, why did it come into, in, into play? So now we know that photons, light particles, are actually intertwined with electro, the electromagnetic force, right? They're the force-carrying particles. So obviously to us, we're like, okay, it propagates at the speed of light because the, the what is it called? Lepton? No. What are you talking about? Uh, Force-carrying particles. What? No, like a force-carrying particle is called... Bosons. 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 So, really? Well, yeah, lepton is uh, is a type of... So, electron is a type of lepton. The leptons and fermions are the okay. particles. I never remember this. <laughs> bosons are the force-carrying okay, particles. So, 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 bosons, it's like the photon, which is yeah. the force-carrying particle of the electromagnetic force, of course, obviously, then the electromagnetic field would propagate at the speed of light. But at this mm -hmm. time, it was a discovery. It was a crazy, it was a, it was a crazy, crazy discovery. And discovery. actually, one thing that I thought of at the very beginning of the podcast, but I waited till now to say, oh. is that <laughs> Maxwell's equations at the time were equivalent in terms of innovation and physical, not physical advancement, but advancement in the field of physics as Newton's equations of motion. F equals MA, part two is Maxwell's equations. And then part three is the field equations, general relativity slash also quantum mechanics. Like the staple equations in history, Maxwell's equations were, you know, the, the suc successors of Newton's equations. Okay. Let's just let's just talk about Maxwell's equations. Let's just dive a little let's deep into them cuz I want to I okay. want to yeah. Let's okay. Hear it. So let's see how far we get. But let's talk about the very first Maxwell equation. Okay, let's hear so it. So if you were to see this, it would look something along the lines of Don't say. No, no, no. no. I want I'll just listen. It's it's the divergence of the electric field is equal to the charge density divided by epsilon naught. That is the first equation. And if you study electromagnetism, you'd also recognize this to be the differential form of Gauss's law. So Gauss's law, we usually see it in the integral form as the surface integral of the electric field is equal to the enclosed charge mm -hmm. divided by epsilon naught. Well, a little bit of calculus and common sense can bring us to the differential form. It's actually not that hard because using the divergence theorem, the surface integral of a vector field 
is equal to the volume integral of the divergence, right? And if you think of the enclosed charge of a Gaussian surface, well, charge density is charge per unit volume. So if you just integrate the volume enclosed by that surface, you take the volume integral of the charge density, then you get that enclosed charge. Now, all of a sudden, on both sides of the equations, you have a volume integral over the same volume. So obviously, if you have a volume integral over the same volume, and they're equal to each other, then the integrands have to be equal. So now on one side, you have the divergence of the electric field, and on the other side, you have the charge density. So boom, there you go. You have the differential form. And it looks like nabla.e. Anyways, <laughs> I love saying, I love, I love talking about the equations. Okay, so that is the very first Interesting Maxwell. relationship that uh, he definitely got there between these all of these because also i mean also try try to explain the actual equation a little bit like the significance of the relationship you know well i mean that's a little bit hard i would have to get into like the literal physics of you know gauss's law <laughs> valid valid <laughs> Which, May, but just i don't know brief, brief because like i don't know if you just state the equation i don't know what they're like what is what is what is someone going to do with that like i mean it's interesting put a little little bit of a little bit okay. of context. Here's what like it says. Why is this equation important? Well, here's what it says. Essentially, the divergence is a measure of going away. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, like if you have if you have a surface in three dimensions, let's say it's just a sphere, and the divergence of a field is positive, it means the field tends to move out of the surface. Valid. And so, if you think of a charge and you draw a sphere around that charge the electric field the the tendency to go out of that sphere is exactly equal to the charge density it's and basically the, the yeah. charge density being just a delta function a delta function mm -hmm. at wherever the charge is right because everywhere else is there's no charge and then at one point you have charge. that charge. So and if you know delta functions, when you integrate overall space, you're just going to get whatever the coefficient is next to the delta function. And if your charge has a charge of Q, then how, you, how do you describe the charge density? Well, it's just Q times the delta function, uh, wherever the position is. When you integrate Valid. overall space, you get Q as your charge enclosed in all space. And if you just have a sphere centered at that charge, when you do the volume integral, then boom, your charge enclosed is whatever the charge is. But obviously, you don't have to deal with point charges. You can also deal with continuous distributions, like a sphere of charge, where in that case, you'd actually have to see the spatial dependence of the charge distribution and actually do your integral. And it, let's say you're lucky and you have an idealized problem where the charge density is dependent on the distance from the middle, then it's an easy spherical coordinate integral. Boom. You're done. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is that enough about Gauss's law? I think, I think, I think, I think that was a, that was a relatively better explanation for sure. Okay. hundred percent, 100%. 100 so, um, I forget what it's called. Um, Coulomb's law. Coulomb's law. Okay. There's a, there's a, um, a general form of Coulomb's law that you learn in university and it's described as an integral 
usually let's say in first year of high school you learn coulomb's law and it has to do with point charges is equal to k q q over r squared and that's the electric field or the force or whatever um is it the force what yes okay yes. it's the force of the okay. electrostatic force but coulomb's law. coulomb's law if you divide by the the charge of the test charge or whatever you get a value for the electric field well it turns out that you can f over q is the electric field yeah. You, you can actually, you can generalize Coulomb's law to deal with distributions of charge, which obviously is much more useful and harder to do. So that's why you do it later on. Um, but it's actually an integral over the charge distribution. Now, there's another law in magnetostatics called the Biot-Savard law. And it's analogous to Coulomb's law, um, except now it's a vector because uh, magnetostatics has to do with vectors. <laughs> so each of the, so it's, instead of the point charges, they're each vectors now, basically. Um, no, not necessarily. Because I've not but, seen this equation. Okay. So what you do is um, in electrostatics, it's a dot product, which is why you get, um, in, in, God, there's so there's, yeah, I know, there's so I know. many there's memories of, coming back to me. No, but there's also a lot of foundational stuff that we haven't, we probably mentioned in like episodes here and there, but it's just like, you know, sometimes it is a little bit, I mean, it's very reminiscent, especially when we get into some of these topics, you know, and we just start remembering, Hey, in first year we had all these discussions, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think most of it is simply just remembering the information that we learned so long ago. Yeah. Yeah. So the electric field um, evaluated at some point has to do with your charge distribution and where your charges are in space. And so what you're actually doing is you're integrating over a volume where the charges are. And inside the integral, it's, it's going to depend on the distance, each, you know, DQ, each small contribution to the total mm. where that distance is to the point you're evaluating at. And so you're, you're evaluating the integral over this R prime coordinate, which is R prime is the position of each little contribution and the distance from those R primes to the actual R, which is the position that you're evaluating at. Okay. When we get to magnetostatics, uh, things change a little bit. Because um, and this is still um, <clears throat> this is still under Maxwell, right? Magnetostatics is Maxwell. Is that correct? Uh, well, Maxwell is like everything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. But the reason why you start with magnetostatics is because it's easy. So sounds there fair. You go. Sounds fair. Um, so I'm looking for my notes on the Biot-Savard law here, um, but okay. From what I remember, it's a cross product this time because. Uh, magnetostatics have everything Vectors. to do Vectors. with the right-hand rule. That too. So, current, you point your thumb in the direction of current. I think I've seen this equation. And then, using the curl of your fingers, you can then tell where the electric uh, magnetic right. field is. So, if you have just a line, then, boom, use your right hand. Your thumb is in the direction of the line. And now you know that the magnetic field is curling rightwardly around <laughs> whatever that means <laughs> rightwardly right? it's, it's curling right around rightward 
Okay, yeah, but right it is, it's curling around sure. wherever. Around the, the I mean, the again, right word is for those viewers. Again, if you're just listening to us, then you probably didn't see Parker's hand go that way. Yep. But yeah, I mean, basically, it just depends on wherever your your fingers are curling towards. Because I mean, <clears throat> the fundamental behind this whole rule is simply because your thumb and your fingers point in perpendicular directions, right? And everything that stems out from the right hand rule, which is always related to vectors, simply comes from the fact that there are, in fact, perpendicular relationships. And this whole thing starts from electricity and magnetism being perpendicular relationships, right? So we kind of get that relationship there too. Mm. So the Biot-Savard law, yeah. It's a cross product between the current and the position. So is this one of Maxwell's equations? No, but it's related to because it's this related is to. because this is how you calculate the electric field at a certain point. Cool. Now you have to integrate over your charge. It could be a line. It could be like a wire is like a three dimensional. Whatever your surface, basically, current. it can be a surface. It, like a surface. It, it could be a surface, but yeah. you know the most general form is a volume integral of Makes your sense. current, and it's. It's pretty complicated, but here we go with the second Maxwell equation. It states that the divergence of the magnetic field is equal to zero, Oh, which you can actually show by, because you have an equation for a general magnetic field. If you just, <clears throat> sorry, take the divergence of it, then you'll see that it's just always equal to zero. There is actually no name for this equation. It doesn't come from anywhere. It just comes from literally taking the divergence of the magnetic field and boom you get zero let's get the let's get the importance of that though let's get the importance of that the divergence of the magnetic field is zero that means on average or not on average but it is simply not the so the vector field is not pointing what so it's always like like what is the what is the one line summary of this equation? Would it be like my understanding would be like the magnetic field is always enclosed almost? Yeah, something. Would like that, that be would something that kind of like be that. a one liner thing? Yeah, because it's always enclosed in whatever volume or whatever surface that you're doing it in because it's not going out or nothing is coming in, right? Because coming in would be a negative exactly. divergence, going out would be a positive, but this is just zero. So that I'm assuming simply says that that's pretty cool. Yeah, and now here's the equivalent to. Gauss's law, but in um, in magnetic form. Okay, it's ampere. Ampere. Well, ampere. It's, it's a French Am name. Ampere. ampere. Oh, that's how you yeah. say it. Oh, Anyways. I just say ampere. <laughs> but uh, so Parker with the instead French. of it being a surface integral, it's actually a line integral this oh. time. And so you take a line integral, and the easiest case would be to just take you 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 take a line current, and then what you do is you take a loop. Instead of it being a Gaussian surface, it's an Ampyrean loop oh. that you integrate over. Oh my! And cool. so the I like the name. The line integral of the electric uh, magnetic field dotted with dl, right? Whatever mm. your your line is, is equal to mu naught, which is the magnetic version of epsilon naught, and times the enclosed current. And so you can kind of think of the Ampyrean loop. Um, it, it, it has to be a closed loop, by the way. And this loop has a surface that okay. it encloses. Yeah. And whenever you integrate the, over the B field, yeah. you will get the total amount of current that is crossing that threshold. Okay. And so, Valid. and so if you have two opposing currents, mm -hmm. it'll come out to zero. 
But the, the best part about this is that it doesn't matter how it's distributed. No matter what, if you know the, the B field, you will get the total enclosed current that passes through that loop. B field, by the way, is the magnetic field. Magnetic field. Just letting you know. Yeah. Also, I did a quick search, and the second law is actually just Gauss's law for magnetism. Okay. It's just while well, the first one's there just Gauss, the first one's just Gauss's law. The second one's just Gauss's law for magnetism, because yeah. it just applies for magnetism. So, so Ampere's law, the same way that you have an integral form of Gauss's law that turns into differential form, the same thing applies, except this time you use the curl theorem, and the curl theorem has to do with the curl and line integrals. So you turn the line integral of the B field into a surface integral of the curl. And then on the other side, of course, we, you know how I was talking about uh, current going through a surface. Well, you can just turn the, uh, <laughs> the total current into a surface integral of whatever goes through the surface. Now you have a surface integral on one side and a surface integral on the other side. Next thing you know, you have the differential form of Ampere's law, which is the curl of the B field is equal to mu naught J. Oh, and J is the current per unit volume. Okay. It turns out that that law is actually wrong. <sighs> it's actually wrong. And Maxwell had to correct it before including it in his equations. Now, let me give you an example of, of why it's wrong. Okay, so let's say we have a, a circuit and a capacitor, okay? This is a very cool uh, <laughs> example. Let's okay. hear it. So a circuit and a capacitor. If you draw an Amperian loop around one of the wires, you will get a, a magnetic field, right? Because there are charges moving. Of in course. that wire of course. and that wire is actually crossing through the surface that the loop is drawing out so there's a current okay there's a current moving through this uh circuit and there's also of course there's a battery okay there's a battery to create some of course some that's how the charge is moving stuff, of right? course that's how the charges are moving now for reference here's a diagram okay so um what, ha what happens is that if you draw your Amperian loop in the middle of the capacitor, what do you get? Well, there's no charge moving through. It's a capacitor. So what happens is that if you check the current in between the capacitor, you get no current. If you check the current on the wire, you get some current. So where, where the the discontinuity is is kind of the relationship between the electric field and the current because or sorry it, well it's kind of you know how how does the electric field affect the the b field because obviously there's a b field but you know you can't see it using ampere's law so the actual where it comes from you do a little bit of math you do a little bit of physics with the knowledge that you already know you actually find that the change in electric field is actually um, the correction term. So that's how, and sorry, the change in electric field over time. Over time. Over time. And so the actual correction is that you have the curl of the B field is equal to, uh, you know, some constant times 
the charge or current density. And then what you do is you actually have to add the change in electric field over time to that because in this capacitor example, you have a, a part in your circuit that has no actual um, current, but there is an electric field that changes over time. So that actually accounts for the B field. And what we learned here is that a changing electric field induces a magnetic field. So each one of these, <clears throat> so each one of these laws basically has like a like a good meaning, like a good reasoning behind mm. it, and like a good motivation for each separate one even being true. Yeah. Right. So wait, this was the last one, third one, third one, third one. One um, more, right? I mean, I can just go quickly through the last one. Last one would just be what? Uh, this is this is Faraday's law. The curl right. of the electric field is equal to minus the change in B field over time. It's it's pretty much exactly what I just said. That except, kinda, yeah, except I know reverse, I can understand that though. Except I can reverse that. the roles. Yeah. Um because yeah. this is the curl of the this is the curl of the energy. And I mean the electric and the other one was the curl of the magnetic. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Okay. Each each Maxwell equation is a divergence or a curl. And you have an electric field and a B field. So you check the divergence of each and the curl of each. Damn. And you see what each one of them is equal to. Well that's Maxwell's equations for it. I mean that there, was pretty advanced, though. For there are actual issues. Okay. One of the issues is that the equations aren't symmetric, which means that um, you have um, <laughs> the re okay. The reason why is because um, in electrostatics you have this point charge. You can have a positive or a negative separate from each other. Valid. Yeah. But in magnetostatics, there's no such thing as a magnetic monopole. Mm -hmm. That's something they've been looking for mm -hmm. for a very long time. Yeah. And so this magnetic monopole is actually what causes, or lack thereof, yeah. is what causes this asymmetry in Maxwell's equations. Technically, in Maxwell's equations, we should see that the... Because we have Gauss's uh, law which we see the divergence of the electric field is equal to the charge distribution. Um, but when you take the, the divergence of the B field, you get zero. But if there were magnetic monopoles, it would actually be equal to the magnetic charge, just like the magnetic distribution. No, that makes sense. No, that makes sense. I yeah. understand what you're saying. No, you I, understand, get that. I understand what you're saying. You get because, <clears throat> because of the lack of monopoles, like the Gauss's law for magnetism yeah. is just zero. Yeah. And... Oh, okay, that yeah. yo, that okay, that actually does make sense. Yeah. That actually does make sense. And al also the correction term that was added to Faraday's law. If there was a magnetic monopole, there would be also a correction term mm -hmm. to Ampere's law. Mm -hmm. Basically, again, just for a quick recap for what the what the what what the satisfaction would be if the monopole that did exist. So we had Gauss's law that equaled a certain value or at least the divergence equaled a certain value and it was a positive value, yeah. right? Or at least it was the density of the charge. And in the Magneto's case, because of, oh, that totally makes sense though. Because the lack of the individual Magneto, no, magnets, I guess the individual in, magnets. Like monopoles. Like, you know what I mean? Like the individual poles, because those don't exist, it's simply zero. Because what you study. And you can't get a density. What you study okay. in magnetostatics is, is the steady flow of electrons. You can't, you can't take a part, like, like a section yeah. of a circuit and 
like study that because you know the electrons leave and it's like you know there's no more electrons you need to study like an actual circuit that keeps going in a steady flow and that's when that's that's why they call it magnetostatics it's not that it's static the charges are moving but the flow is steady Mm. so St- static in that because way. there is electrostatics and electrodynamics which are actually different things because they do talk yeah. about static charges and dynamic charges where the charges itself are also flowing and stuff like yeah. that which does introduce a level of complexity but yeah. that was basically the maxwell's equation that i found super interesting yeah i try i mean i tried i mean <laughs> to anyone to any to, to anyone who is not in university that probably did not make any sense to you sense. Probably none whatsoever. I really don't. Because the divergence, the curl, they're all terms that are not even right. Also, this is coming from somebody who literally took one semester of electromagnetism. Valid. So also, the way that by I the way, explained it yeah. could have been bad, no, just but in general. Maybe in the future, we're definitely going to have better explanations. But like the divergence and the curl thing, like I think that's the biggest mathematical boundary. Because yeah. again... The, the importance of any of these relationships, I mean, uh, any of these equations is the relationships, yeah. right? It's not really the equation. That's why I was trying to say, don't just like regurgitate the equation because there's no point of that. Yeah. The whole purpose of these equations is to understand the relationship yeah. between these variables or between these, these, yeah, between these variables. And now we so, have it got with that. That's pretty cool. So anyway, the, the last thing I wanted to say about Maxwell is that he actually produced the first color image ever, oh, which is pretty interesting. Cool. But I mean, I don't really feel like going into that Yeah, I mean, right I now. think that's cool. So one thing I want to end off with Boltzmann just continuing on his craziness with statistics because like I mean I'm in statistics guys like you know I'm, I'm I love Boltzmann and what he's done for physics because again like it's it's huge and again with 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 just the Boltzmann distribution something that he continued on uh, for a long time that's used that's literally the foundations of statistical mechanics today is basically again just the relationship between between a body's energy or the average energy that it that like the system will experience and the velocity of its particles. Basically, the speed distribution, the Boltzmann speed distribution, usually what it's called, of any system. And the adva- and, and this is literally it's simply a relationship basically between the properties of the system and again the speed. And more mathematically more rather than the speed it's actually a probability statement because again this whole thing is started with statistics so to be more accurate if i want to take it that step further which i do it is more of a probability statement stating the probability that the system will be in a certain state given certain parameters right and this is literally applicable for any realistic system right? I mean, no system, no perfect system is ideal. And this takes that into consideration too. So the whole inclusion of the distribution, he basically invented a field of physics is what he did, right? Because that's, that's, you can think of, you can think about it like that. And I think it's really cool how he used a lot of Maxwell's laws to kind of help assist in those formulate because the Maxwell Boltzmann distribution was completely Boltzmann. It's just Maxwell's laws that allowed him to prove that his equations worked right because a lot of it was for electromagnetism as well which is then he used with maxwell's equations so that's basically boltzmann all right i don't think i'm missing anything else anything big at least um yeah that's basically boltzmann well 
Thank you, everybody. Anything, for... Wait, anything about Maxwell? You want to add? No, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah, I, I think I think that Maxwell <laughs> equation thing definitely dragged you. Uh, definitely uh, tired you out. But um, that's James Clark Maxwell and Ludwig Clark 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 James Clark Maxwell and Ludwig Bozeman. All right. Thank you for Bozeman. listening to this episode. If you enjoyed, make sure to follow, like, comment everywhere, and uh, also come and subscribe on YouTube. Come follow our Instagram page at math.physics.podcast, where we you know, always keep our viewers updated with everything that's going on. This very week, we had Tejas Weenie, our very first giveaway winner, receive her shirt. I know I mentioned that she would receive it like a week or two ago. She got it. <laughs> there were a few complications, but now she's got it, so that's finally there, and uh, she's really happy. I'm really happy that she's happy. So that's really cool. More giveaways to come. Stay tuned for a really cool giveaway that's about to be coming. Oh, yeah. So get ready to type those comments because hint, hint. Hint, hint. So this this officially has been episode number 80 of the Math and Physics podcast. I am your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we will see you soon. Bye, guys.